do me a favor and uh, grab a Bible. We've got some here that are in baskets on the floor. And get with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And the Bibles that we have, that would be on page 816. 816. Uh, Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at uh, a day in the life of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see what it looks like to place our faith in Him. So let me pray, and we're going to get right after it. All right, Lord, we pray right now that you would use this time to help us see the beauty of your Son. Lord, we are so grateful for your power, uh, the power of your name and how that works in our lives, Lord. We pray that all of us in here would have an opportunity this morning to place our faith in that name and, and to receive all that we need from him. So God, we, we just love that we're gathered here today and we're just asking that you would speak to each of us, please. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, uh, Mark chapter 5, we're looking at stories that kind of intersect. They come in tandem. They're, they're a story about a religious leader and his, his request of Jesus to come and help him. And then right in the middle of that is an interruption. And we, we hear of another story as well. And they kind of go together and they help us understand really what's going on uh, as we interpret them together. So the first individual that we're introduced to is, a, is an individual named Jairus. He's a synagogue leader and his daughter is sick. So look with me at verse 21 and following. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. If you recall, a few weeks ago, we were looking at a story earlier in the book of Mark where Jesus was healing people and his fame was growing. So in that area, there was a lot of people who were coming out to experience his, his ministry. And then he peaced out. Remember, he hopped on a boat. He went to the other side of the lake. Well, now he's returning and again, the crowd shows up. And this time, an individual steps forward, and this is a religious leader. And in their society, religion was such a big deal that if he's a synagogue leader, he's probably very well-known and probably very affluent, probably well-off. But he has a situation here because his daughter is sick and dying, and therefore he's coming to Christ as the healer saying, could you please come? I don't know what else to do. Please come and put your hands on my daughter so that she might get well. Yesterday, Reese had a, a fever. She woke up in the morning and she wasn't herself and took her little temperature and she was, you know, a degree higher than she's supposed to be and she was miserable. And as a daddy, there's something about that. You just look at your little one and you go, I, I want to do whatever I can to make you feel comfortable, to make you feel better. And um, obviously a low-grade fever is nothing in comparison with a disease or a sickness that is causing this father to, to think, my daughter is going to die. And if there's not something done in, on her behalf, if there's not something done to make her well, she might pass away. But there's a guy who's a healer and he's coming through this area. So I'm going to go. I'm going to plead with him and I'm going to beg him, please come to my house and lay your hands on this little girl of mine and make her well so she can be healed and live. And so he does that. He comes before Jesus. He falls before him. I'm, I'm sure he's kind of game planning in his head. I, I hope, I hope, I pray that he will come with me. I hope he'll come. I hope we make it there in time. And Jesus agrees to go. And he says, yes, I'll come with you. And they begin marching toward the home of Jairus and to the sick little girl. And as they're going, there's an interruption in the story. Because while they're traveling in this huge crowd of people moving toward Jairus's home, this other woman comes up and, and look with me at verses 24 and following. A large crowd followed 
and pressed around him, around Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. This woman realizes there's an opportunity for her here. There's a healer here. And she has been for 12 years bleeding. And in their society, they had different rules and regulations about things. There were things that were clean and unclean. And if something was unclean, there would be a process for that that thing being purified. So if a person was unclean, there'd usually be a period of maybe seven days and some kind of washing and routine somebody could go through before they'd be reintroduced into the community. Now, this woman, because she had been bleeding, was technically unclean. And that's then her life for 12 years, meaning she could not have normal relationships with people. Because as an unclean person, she would always have to distance herself so that, so that she wouldn't contaminate another individual. If she's in public, she'd have to let people know, hey, I'm unclean. And everyone would kind of go around her and stay away from her. And so we don't know all the details of her life, if she was married or had kids or what the story was, but we know that she could not have intimate relationships like most people would want. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine what your prayers would look like if for 12 years you felt like an outcast because you were? And you would say things like, God, why on earth am I cursed? What have I done to deserve this? 12 years, I'm trying everything that I know to do. I've been to every specialist, every doctor. I've exhausted all of my resources. I have no other strategy to try to deal with this. But I heard that Jesus is coming to town. And so what does she do in secrecy? She, inter- she goes into the crowd. And she, again, she would be in deep trouble because she's not supposed to interact with people. But she goes into this crowd and tries to find a way to get as close as she can just to touch the cloak of Jesus Christ and receive healing. And, and so that's exactly what she does. She, she moves toward him. She comes up behind him in the crowd and she touches his cloak. Now, as we move through the story, I want to point some things out to you. I want to point some, some different lessons that we can learn as we march through a story like this in the Bible. And the first thing I want to say is suffering is often a prelude to grace. And suffering is often an, a thing that we go through, pain and despair and hardship, is, is often something that comes before we get to the other side and we experience a grace of God in a profound way. So as Christians, we need to be aware that when we go through something like this, something difficult or painful or something, something that causes us despair, we can be the people of hope that say, on the other side, there's an experience of God's grace that will be profound. And, and, and I'm not just making this up. There are verses in the Bible that say as much. When Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 8, he says, I do not consider that our present sufferings are worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. What, what's he saying? He's saying, look, what he's going through is presently very difficult. It's suffering. But he goes, when glory comes on the other side, it will outweigh everything we've been through. There's something on the other side that makes all of this worth it. And that's, you know, for some people, it, it comes immediately, like the two individuals in our story, they get to experience the grace of God very quickly. But for all of us that are believers, we can say with confidence, when the Lord returns, that glory is guaranteed. There is a grace on the other side of it. Suffering is often a prelude to grace. So when we are in the, the difficult time, we should be praying and trying to be people who have hope. 
Now, that's not easy. It's not easy to look at your situation and go, okay, God's going to work. He's going to work here. He's at work here. But we should be people who are by faith attempting to believe that God is good and that on the other side of our suffering is an opportunity for God's glory to be revealed. Here's another lesson that we learned. Suffering is not unique or privileged to any kind of person. Um, sometimes, you know, I, I would, I'm tempted to look at a, at a person who has a lot of resources and go, man, their life is so easy. And, and the truth is, this story reminds us there's no category of people who are insulated from pain and suffering. Jairus was a leader, well-known in the community, probably very wealthy. He is not insulated from pain. And we can become fooled into thinking that if we could just make enough money or get to that level in our career or whatever, we kind of hang out there as the, the thing that's going to give us relief. And we can think, if I had that, everything would be easy. But that's just not the case. All people deal with suffering to some degree. All people go through hurt and pain. And so for us, we need to be aware that sometimes the, the sufferings that affluent people go through is actually very challenging. And they don't even feel the permission to, to, to express it. Because they're going, look, I've got everything. Who am I to complain? And they silently suffer. Jairus, though he was popular, though he was affluent, his daughter was sick and dying. And he's looking for help. And this woman, um, obviously she's in a situation of poverty. She's exhausted her resources. And she too is experiencing pain and suffering. And I do want to say this. Though I think pain and suffering comes to all people, I do think there are certain classes and categories that are more exposed to pain and suffering, like this woman who's in a woman in that century in poverty who, who, who would feel that suffering more prominently and probably be more prone to it. We as Christians have to move toward those kinds of people and be willing to help and offer relief and do what we can to alleviate suffering for them. So suffering is often a prelude to grace. It is not a unique experience. And here's, a, here's another lesson I want to point out before we march forward. The faith that people have can actually be incomplete and still a good deal. And here's what I mean. When you look at these two individuals, some of the commentators pointed out that their faith looks a little superstitious, thinking that if they could get close enough and touch something, that's going to be how they're going to get well, or if they could just get in the proximity. And here's what I want to say. We should be comfortable with people coming in as baby believers with whatever kind of faith they have. And I think I'm probably guilty of this because if you guys know me, the way that I preach and teach and the passions that I have for theology and getting things right and being truthful, I might be presenting things in a way, I probably am presenting things in a way where it feels like or sounds like you got to get it right. And the truth is, if you have faith in Christ, if you're believing in him, even if it's kind of a superstitious, like, hey, I want to be in a church building. I want to be where Christ might, his glory might show up or however somebody might say that, whatever that looks like, God is able to use that. And so we as a church, we have to embrace that and allow for people uh, to have whatever kind of faith that they have, placing it in Jesus Christ. All right, so what happens next? Look with me at verse 29 and following. After touching the cloak of Jesus, verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, 
came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. All of these people gathering around and they're, they're, you know, like we're Americans and we love our personal space. If I'm talking to somebody and they keep moving forward and I keep moving back, but, but in other places, there's not a safety bubble for people. If you go to Africa or, or Haiti um, and you do public transportation, you better get comfortable with touching a lot of people. So you're just stuffed in a little van or minivan and people are hanging off the side of it, but you're in there. And that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus turns around and he goes, who touched me? And all the disciples are going, look, everyone's touching you. There's so many people here. We're bumping into each other. I mean, how are we going to identify one special person who touched you? But Jesus is relentless here. He's asking the question. And it's not that he's uninformed. If he's all-knowing, obviously he knows the answer. But but ordinarily, this is what God does. He'll ask a really good question. So when you respond, you know something more. Who touched me? And this woman, knowing what had happened, that she had felt in her body the relief from the experience that she had had for 12 years and fully aware of the power that came in her direction, she comes and falls at his feet and explains herself. Now, Jesus is doing something here. When he's trying to identify her, he doesn't just want her to have a healing. He wants her to have a personal experience with him. That's what D.A. Carson says. She wanted, a, she wanted a healing. Jesus wanted a meeting. Meaning the healing is incredible and we should celebrate that wherever we see it. When somebody who's sick is made well, we should be very thrilled with that. But even better than being physically healed is to know the healer. So he stops and he says, who touched me? Because I, I want you to know something about what just transpired. This woman comes forward and he's able to say to her, daughter, daughter. He's addressing her. Can you imagine not not having somebody speak to her even in those kinds of terms and who knows how long? And he's able to say, daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter, you, you are my child and now you're well and now you're restored. So go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's incredible what this woman experiences and it's incredible what Jesus is doing here by saying, look, I'm the healer and I want you to know what just took place, that you had an interaction with me, the healer. And I need you to know what that means. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit, but we want to keep going with our story. So what happened with Jairus? uh, They're marching toward his home and this woman comes up and the whole thing pauses there on her for a few minutes or maybe, you know, 30 minutes or an hour or whatever it was. But now we move back to Jairus and it says in verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, your daughter's dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? Can you imagine what that was like for him? Um, Yesterday, I had an outdoor wedding, which by the way, was very cold, but I was getting ready for the wedding and my mom came over to the house to watch the kids so I could go do the ceremony and then come back. And I was about to leave and she gets a phone call and the phone call is letting her know that a tree fell on Brad's house, my older brother. And so... We're, we're like, is he okay? And they say, we don't know. And there's that little moment there where it's like, okay, that's, that's some heavy stuff. Can you imagine hearing the news? And, and we called back and Brad's totally fine and it was very crazy, but God continues to spare that kid over and over again. He's got this thing, <laughs> stuff crashes through the place he's at and he lives through it. But he's okay. But can you imagine being told, your daughter's dead? 
and hearing that news and, and feeling like I was so close. I did everything that I could to get this healer to my home. We were on our way, and this woman screwed this whole thing up. Like, I was so close to being right there with this healer and my daughter, knowing that he could do something incredible. Here's, here's something that we need to know. The timing of God doesn't often look or feel like we think it should. Um, there are moments where there is a delay, there's a pause, there's something that disrupts how we think it should play out, and we need to be aware. And I'm not, I'm not competent to tell you how the timing of God works. I just know we should be people who trust him. So there are going to be moments where it's going to be a 30-minute disruption. And things are going to maybe get a lot worse before they get any better. But we need to be people who trust God's timing. But here's another thing. When we find out a little bit later on that his daughter is 12 years old. And the reason why we get that little detail is so we're well aware. The whole time that the daughter has been alive, this woman has been suffering. Her timing doesn't feel right either. You look at her timing, can you imagine 12 years? What on earth? What on earth, God, are you doing? Why do I have to wait 12 years? So the timing doesn't often look or feel like we think it should, but we need to be people who trust God and believe that his timing is good even if we don't understand it. And we might be in something right now that is a, a big inconvenience, and maybe it'll get better tomorrow. But some of us might be in a season right now where we're in it for 12 years. And we're not sure how it's going to get better or when it's going to get better, but we need to be people who are able to say, God's timing is perfect. And whenever that comes, whenever that grace arrives, I'm going to celebrate that. And in the meantime, I'm going to continue to preach to myself that God is good and Jesus is faithful and his deliverance is on the way. And so we need to be people who can, who can just embrace the fact that we don't understand the timing of God, but we trust him. But look what happens, verse 36. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. So he looks at this individual, he looks at Jairus and he says, he says, don't be afraid, believe. Now, that's a hard command. And I'm not trying to water it down at all. When Jesus looks at you in your suffering and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. I'm, I'm not trying to say this is an easy thing to do, but it's something we have to do. We have to preach to ourselves. We have to receive his invitation over and over again. Because listen, even if you're a Christian, even if you're a believer, we have unbelief in our hearts. And we go through stuff and we have a really hard time understanding what God's up to. And Jesus continually invites us, don't be afraid, believe. Don't allow fear to be the thing operating on your heart. Allow faith to, to be the thing that's helping you to navigate this season. Don't be afraid, believe. And, and Christ is inviting us to that. I do not think it's easy, but I think it's the work that we need to embrace. That while we're going through this stuff, we're saying, I'm gonna to try to develop a faith in Christ. I'm gonna to try to keep looking at him and see how he works and, and just keep my eyes focused on him instead of the circumstances or the scenario or the bigness or the impossibility. I'm just gonna keep focused on him and keep trying to encourage my heart to trust him, to believe him. So do not be afraid, but believe. He takes the smaller group of believers, the inner circle with him, <clears throat> and he takes them to the home of the synagogue leader. There's all kinds of people that are crying in their culture, they had professional 
mourners, professional wailers, people they would pay to come to a funeral ceremony and weep. And Jesus sees all of that commotion and he's saying, what on earth is going on here? And then he speaks, he says, look, this little girl is not dead, she's asleep. Now he's not misinformed. He's not thinking that she's taking a little nap. He's well aware. In fact, in the other account, in one of the other books of the Bible, with the same exact story, it talks about how Jesus knew she was dead. But he says she's asleep. Why does he do that? Because he can use, he looks at death and he sees it really like it's somebody taking a nap. And he's aware that that's not going to last forever. Death doesn't have the same kind of threat for him. So he looks at her and he says, she's just sleeping. And they start laughing. One of the things we have to know is when we are people of faith, we will be ridiculed. When we look at a situation that looks bleak and hopeless and we say, no, God's at work here, everyone's going to scoff a little bit and go, what are you, crazy? But people of faith trust and believe. And so um, he tells them, you know, uh, get out of here. In fact, verse 40 goes like this. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha koum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is wild. This is so wild. He goes into this little place with this intimate group of people, the closest followers and and the, the, the mom and the dad. And uh, by the way, if you want to participate in the things of God, be a person of faith that gets you on the front row. Be a person of faith. But he brings them in and, um, and he says to this little girl, and we're told the, the phrase in the original language and its interpretation was basically saying, hey, sweetheart, it's time to get up. Like on a school morning when, when Reese needs to get up and get ready, I'll go into her room and I'll turn the lights on as dim as I can and I'll sit down on her bed and take her, take her little hand, put my hand on her and I'll say, hey, sweetheart, It's time to get up. And Jesus does that for this girl. He says, little girl, I say to you, get up. And what does she do? She comes back from the dead. When Jesus says, hey, sweetheart, it's time to get up, she literally comes back from the dead. Jesus issues an invitation to her to get up, and she hears his voice, and she comes alive. And she stands up, and she's walking around, and everyone's astonished. I mean, what else are you going to do when you see a little girl who's been dead, and all of a sudden she's up and well, and you're like, what just happened? But they see this incredible reality on display then of this girl coming back from the dead, and he gives strict orders not to let anyone know about it. He's saying, look, I don't, this isn't something to draw attention to me. I'm on a timetable, and, and I, I don't want everyone to be aware of this. So he keeps pushing out Uh, you know, his mission and just recognizing I'm on a timetable here. I'm not trying to draw attention. And he says, get her something to eat. We're told this nitty gritty detail that this little girl is alive and she's hungry. So let's get her some food. This is not some, she's not a ghost floating around. She's not, you know, temporarily just resuscitated. She's a little girl who was dead and came back to life and is hungry. Get her a PB&J. Do something here. Let's get her Let's get her little tummy full. And so Jesus does the most incredible thing here. He brings a girl back from the dead. Okay, so why these stories? Why do they go together? What are they meant to accomplish? Why did God tell us these two events happening in tandem? Why did he do this? And I think the reason why they're here and the reason why we're looking at them this morning is because God wants us to have faith in his son. 
He wants us to have faith in Jesus. And, and the truth is, we could say that of any portion of the Bible. You're supposed to read it and have greater faith in Jesus Christ. But here, I think we get some very specific reasons why we should place our faith in Jesus. So I'm going to give them to you as we move toward closing. Um, we should have faith in Jesus because he has power to heal. We should have faith in him because he is the one who can look at sickness and, and diseases, and he can look at things that even our medical science cannot tackle, and he can look at that, and by a word or by a touch or by whatever he wants to do, he can make that thing go away. He's a healer. And so we should have faith in him because he shows us, even in real time, in history, that he's able to heal somebody on the spot. Immediately, the woman was well. He grabs the hand of the little girl. He calls her to wake up from the dead. She wakes up. It's crazy. He's a healer. He has power to heal. And we should trust him then and believe in him because he's a healer. And one day when he returns, he's going to do a lot of healing. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. And we can believe that and trust that. So we should believe in him. Another reason why we should trust in him is because he is the one who resurrects. Isn't that crazy? That people die and we see it, we see it in our world all the time, people passing away. But Jesus is the one who is able to, with a word, call people back from the dead, to, to raise people to life. And not only does he do that in a few instances in the Bible for real individuals, he himself came back from the dead and promised his followers that they have a similar experience awaiting them. He has the power of resurrection. Now, John, one of the dudes that was there, sitting there watching this little girl, astonished, geeking out about everything that he just saw happen, he writes later in John 5, verses 28 and 29, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. He's saying, look, the power that we got to see in a little bedroom in Jairus' home is the power that is coming and will call forth the dead. He has power to resurrect, and it is a, an amazing reality. And so we want to trust in him and believe in him because we watch people die all the time, but we want to see people live. We want to see them raised. So Jesus has the power to resurrect. Another reason why we should trust in him is because he's able to make unclean things clean. He's able to take things that are ceremonially unclean and he's able to purify them in the, in the moment. They had all of this stuff. You got to wash your hands. You got to wear this stuff. You got to wait this amount of time. But Jesus doesn't have to go through that process. That process is meant to point to him and what he can do in an instant. So when something is unclean, Jesus isn't going, hey, hey, guys, stay, stay back, okay? We're going to deal with this, but you just got to give me a minute to get my bearings. No, Jesus moves toward people, and he can take what's unclean, a woman who's been bleeding or, or a little girl who's been dead, things that other people, because of the uncleanness of them, would kind of step back and go, whoa, whoa, we're not going close to that, and Jesus moves toward it. He's able to make unclean things clean. Now, here's why this is really important. Because a lot of people go through life thinking, if I'm going to get right with God, if I'm going to be okay with God, I've got a lot of work to do. I better start cleaning things up. I better start figuring out a process to get myself ready to encounter him. The truth is, Jesus is able to take us in our uncleanness and in a moment declare us pure. He's able by his power to take us in our desperate condition. And he doesn't go, look, you better go beautify your life. You better go get cleaned up. You better go try all these different things and then come back to me. No, he finds us in our mess. And he says, I want you right now. And I can declare you clean right now. He's able to purify us. 
So we should trust in him. We should also be like him because he displays the compassion of God. He shows us what it looks like to move toward those in need. While everyone else shrinks back from from people who are unclean, Jesus moves toward them. When he realizes that an unclean woman touched him, he doesn't say, hey, who did that? Do you understand what you did here? You You could have contaminated all these people. No, he doesn't scold her. He calls her daughter. He, he recognizes her need, and in that moment, she's purified. When there's a dead little girl, he doesn't kind of go, ah, I don't want to touch her. He moves toward her. So he, he's the compassion of God on display. Christians, we should be people who are moving toward those in need. And I got to admit that all too often, I think Christians try to insulate themselves from people who aren't living according to God's standards. We go, look, I, I don't want to hang out with them. I don't want to get contaminated. I want to keep my safe distance. But Christians should follow the compassion of God himself and move toward those who are in need and look for opportunities to bless them. And I think that's what Jesus does here. So we should have faith in him because he has the power to heal. He has the power to resurrect. He makes unclean things clean. He is the compassion of God on display. And here's the last thing, and this is so important. We should have faith in Christ because he is able to save. Um, I want to point out one more time that verse in the middle. It's verse 34. When the woman touches his cloak and falls at his feet, trembling and explains who she is and what has taken place, he says this to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus is a savior. He's saying, look, daughter, you're, you're, you're in the family of God. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. But here's what I want to point out. One of the words in there, in that sentence, is a word that's used in a, in a lot of different ways. It's actually the word save. And it can talk about being restored. It can talk about a physical healing like we have here. Certainly that's uh, part of what's going on. She has been physically healed. She's been saved in that sense. But it's also a word that's used in the scriptures to talk about how God is saving people through faith in Christ. And, and I think that that's exactly what Jesus wants us to realize, that not only did she get a physical healing, but she's also being saved because she is recognizing th- this object of faith, this one who has the power to make her well. And, and so when we, this morning, I just want to say, I think God really wants us to have faith in his son because his son brings salvation. And we can place our faith in him and receive the saving power of God this morning. If you've not done that before, I want to encourage you to place your faith in him. But some of us, we've, we've trusted him and we've trusted him over and over again. Again, this is an opportunity for us to place our faith in the son of God and to experience his power of salvation at work in our lives. God has given us this story so that we might be mindful of the power of the son of God, Jesus Christ, and place our faith in him and trust in him and receive all that he has for us. So I'm going to pray. And our band is going to come back up here, but let me pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. And thank you for revealing the beauty of Jesus Christ. We are so glad that we were able to look at these stories this morning and, and remember how, how powerful you are. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to believe. I know that often we kind of cruise through life riddled with fear. And Lord, would you help us to believe instead? And Lord, whatever the timetable is that some of us are living in right now, help us to believe that your timing is perfect. And on the other side, there is a glory to be revealed. So help us, God, to trust you and to continue trusting you. 
Lord, for anyone in here this morning who's maybe trusting Christ for their very first time, would you give them courage to talk about it, to tell somebody maybe that they came with or, or somebody here on our team, Lord, would you give them the courage to just be bold and, and make it known that they want to trust in you? Lord, we're so grateful that you continually invite us to believe in you. Help us to do that, please, in your name. Amen.